All right, I'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Lord, we just thank you for this. That were recorded beforehand, uh, that we might learn from them, that we might see who it is that we serve in a God that is uh, so magnificent, that holds all things in his hands and directs all things according to his own will, Lord, and, and that we are allowed to take part in that. As we move through Genesis, Lord, as we now get into individuals' lives, we see the way that you actually work, not just on the grand scale of creation, but down to the nitty-gritty of, of everyday activities, Lord, and, and for that, um, we uh, stand in amazement. And so I pray that you'd allow us to see that in you, we'd allow to see it in your word, and ultimately, Lord, that we'll see it in your Son, whom you have sent uh, to save us. Lord, that we would rejoice in him and have one more reason to give him glory for all eternity. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Welcome back to Genesis. Again, I just want to thank Matt and everything he does as far as, uh, Matt Dwiggins, as far as what he does in in teaching Daniel and giving me a break when needed. And I got to go spend some time in Colorado a couple weeks ago, and that was wonderful. And last week I got to spend uh, during Sunday school in the fundamentals class. Um, It's more of a seminar or a semester or actually like a full year uh, but amazing job. It was really neat to be in there and see if uh, those of you who have done fundamentals in the past, uh, I wouldn't necessarily discount doing that. Um, it's, it's given it uh, kind of a college level, <laughs> certainly high school level, probably, probably college level now. Um, and it is a ton of information that you're going to receive and you'll walk out of there with a really good handle on the word. I was very, very encouraged by being in there last week and seeing what's going on that. And uh, he, Todd teaches exactly the way his mentor, Scott Johnson, teaches, who taught at Lincoln Christian when I was there and uh, taught a year of Bible. And it's, it was like being in his class all over again. It was kind of freaky. Um, so just, I'd, I'd like to plug those two things, both the Daniel, um, the Daniel study that's going on when I can't be here, as well as uh, what's going on in the room next to us here. For those of you who have the opportunity in the future, if you, if you don't feel like you've got a good handle on the word um, and a full understanding, that goes back there, a full understanding of, of uh, what we believe here and, and how it applies to you, great class to be involved in. I know some of you have done it on uh, out at Todd's as well in that group. So uh, a great blessing to our church. All right, so Genesis 24, we probably need to start with a review of what's going on. So um, hopefully some of you can get this. Who's, who's the author of Genesis? Moses, Moses wonderful. And uh, what's the context of this book being given? Who's it being given to? Hebrews. So the, the people of Israel, as they're ready to enter the, the uh, promised land, and uh, so, so they're the ones who are first receiving it. They're the ones for whom, uh, if you're going to run an interpretation out of this, it really needs to relate to the author and the, and the people receiving it. And so we keep that in our mind. And so we're, 
we're kind of forced to put ourselves into their position and, and think, what would this mean to us as, as the, the people of Israel as we're getting ready to take the promised land? Um, the plot of this book so far starts with the creation of a perfect world by God himself. It starts with God himself being self-existent, nothing coming before him. So it starts with the, the big picture and then starts slowly ratcheting down and getting uh, more and more defined. Um, we see that the world is perfect and good. And in Genesis 3, we see man fall, but a seed is promised to come through Eve. We see the reproduction then of man begins with Cain and Abel, and this promised seed is met with challenges in the Cain and Abel being murdered and murderer, not respectively. Um, uh, and then we see uh, man continue to procreate to a point where uh, there's a large population of humans now, and in that large population we see Again, just the evil deeds of man to the point where God destroys the world and, and uh, the population gets reduced down to Noah, his wife, and his kids and their wives. So the eight of them. And then we see the next step is that nations are actually created um, out of those eight people and different lines and the importance of different lines. And then we see the call of Abraham and the call of Abraham is that he would be the father of God's chosen people. That, and he moves him from where he is at to actually into the land of promise. And up to this point, we've had Abraham get to, uh, I, we saw last, last time, gosh, it'd be three weeks ago, we saw the death and burial of Sarah after the birth of Isaac in the, the episode where Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac being the one thing that, that Abraham can hold in his hand that is a promise fulfilled by God. He hasn't received the land yet. He hasn't seen his descendants. He hasn't seen um, his people become the great people that God has promised. He's, he's still waiting on those things, but he finally has Isaac. God asks him to offer up Isaac, which he does. God stops him, and Isaac continues. Then we see the death of Sarah, and in that death, I think the big thing, again, for that Moses is trying to get across, what the author is trying to get across to the people of Israel, is Abraham finally purchases a piece of land and has a deed of the piece of land where the patriarchs will be buried, where their spouses will be buried, and that the people as they're entering the land know there's a place there that, that we have held that has been a possession for us. And we titled that... that uh, that chapter, the study of that chapter, I wrote across the top, Stranger in a Strange Land, and noted that Moses had a son. Does everyone remember what Moses' son's name was? Gershom. Gershom means stranger in a strange land. Very interesting, because in chapter 24, here we are dealing with a bride of Isaac, and we're going to be dealing with a servant of Abraham. And does anyone know who the servant of Abraham is? So if we turn back to Genesis 15, 1 through 4, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. 
Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am, a ch- I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who c- will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So this is the story of Eliezer. We're going to learn a lot about Eliezer in these 67 verses. Does anyone know who Moses' other son was? Eliezer. So I thought it was kind of interesting that we have this picture of a servant of God. Help of my God is what Eliezer means. Follows in Genesis right after Gershom. The story of Gershom, which is a stranger in a strange land. And I can just imagine Moses as he's writing these two things, thinking of his own two children as, as he's going through this. That's the context that we're in. So, the understanding as we turn back there and read Genesis 15, 1 through 4, is that Abraham, Abram at that time had no children. And so, he was a wealthy man. He had these promises from God that his seed would continue on, that they would possess the land and have everything that God had promised. Abraham, Abram did not have any children, so Eliezer, his chief servant, who was born in his household, would have been the one to receive all of the inheritance. And I think that's important because we're going to see the role that Eliezer plays. And one of the first things to point out actually comes before chapter 24, and that is Eliezer was set to receive an inheritance from his master. So when Isaac was born, certainly when Ishmael was born, the question would have come up, is Ishmael going to receive the inheritance instead of me? Eliezer, that would have come to my mind. I think it probably would have come to his. God said, no, this is not the heir. There's another one to come. And then finally, when Isaac does come, it meant that Eliezer was no longer the, the heir apparent to Abram and all his wealth. It makes you realize that as Eliezer up to this point and we're decades later that makes you realize that Eliezer must have also believed God that God was going to send a seed for Abraham and and this whole loss of the inheritance never seems to have any effect on him whatsoever. Yeah. So 24-2 and Abraham said to his servant Yeah. Yes, both by tradition and also by deduction from the text as far as uh, one that was born and the oldest that was born in his household being the one who had received, would receive the inheritance. Thank you for allowing the interruption. Yeah, absolutely. So God, is, God has certainly blessed Abraham and that's made perfectly clear. In verse 1, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And we've seen that uh, with both livestock and servants and gold and wealth and uh, victory in battle. And um, he's given him the son that he has promised. He's given him another son, and both these sons are promised to be 
leaders of great nations, or, or out of them will come great nations. Um, incredible amount of blessing that's flown to Abraham. So verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. First is the description of Eliezer here, that he's older, he's experienced, he's proven. There's a relationship between Abraham and Eliezer that goes far back beyond this. Eliezer is not a young man, but Eliezer and Abraham were obviously very close. The whole phrase, please place your hand under my thigh, should make you uncomfortable makes me uncomfortable. It's not the way we do business today. Um, and it, it, the picture that you're probably getting in your mind is probably accurate. How about we leave it there? So they're very close. He has this authority under Abraham that's been granted him. He had charge of all that he owned. So there's an incredible amount of trust here. There's, there's an incredible relationship here between master and servant. That relationship then is exemplified by the type of oath that's taking place here. And then in verse 3, I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. So God is the witness between them in this oath. He is ultimately the authority and the master, not Abraham. Abraham is, is by saying that Swearing by the Lord, he's saying, this is what God would want you to do. This is what God wants me to make sure happens. And he is our witness, and he is the one that's going to carry this about. And so when you're making an oath with me, understand you're actually making an oath with the ultimate master, and that is God himself. God does not want you to take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among who I live. The relationship is close enough here that Abraham and Eliezer will play the same role in Isaac's life if one of them is not there. If Abraham dies, and Abraham is, is, is getting very close to death here, then Eliezer needs to make sure that this one thing is done, and, and again, the trust is there that that will take place. And there's a command there then in verse 4, "'Go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife for my son Isaac.'" And if you do look at the family tree, it is kind of a bush. Um, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But the role here, in fact, Jacob, Isaac's son, who the line continues to the promised seed, goes back to the same family for his wife as well. So Rachel comes, Rachel and Leah for his wives come from there. And we're going to get introduced to Laban here for the first time as well. So the line is to remain outside of the paganism that is present in the Canaanites. And it isn't necessarily that Abraham's family is uh, a bunch of God-worshiping, God-fearing people who um, are necessarily, you know, the exemplary people for his son to live up to. In fact, they worship idols. We're going to find out later in Genesis. Um, the, the reason 
is, is that the Canaanites themselves are so bad compared to them, and also that there's a judgment that God has proclaimed on the Canaanites that's going to come, that's going to remove them from, they'll remove them from uh, the earth so that the Israelites can come in. And again, one of the most important things for the Israelites that God tells them is when you go into the land, don't marry who? The people. You're not supposed to marry the Canaanites. So this is already this this is already being laid down for them at this point. God is saying, no, when you go into the land as Israelites, when Moses is describing this story to them, he's giving them the first example of this is not who you're to marry. You're not to marry into this severe paganism that's present here. There's a special badness here. And the example is already being set when the first in the line of Abraham is told you can't marry here. It's also interesting uh, that uh, not only is he not to marry them, um, but he's also not to go back there. He's to stay here in the land. Um, I guess we'll get to that in just a second. So the other thing that we note here is that who gets to choose Isaac's wife. Yeah, basically Eliezer under the authority of Abraham, under the authority of God. Shouldn't Isaac get to choose his wife? How do we do it? Just out of curiosity. How do we choose? Who chooses who, who you marry? Yeah, we do. E-harmony, yes, amen, amen. We do it based on personality. We do it based on past experiences. We do it based on uh, what, what kind of religious background you have, which isn't a bad thing. We do it on all these things. But when we as individuals, when, when I think about the fact that I was 19 when I got engaged, anybody beat that? 18, way to go, guys. Um, Thank goodness God was in control of that, right? Because how good of a job would, does the typical 18-year-old make in making decisions? How good does the typical 20-year-old make in making decisions? Or a 43-year-old. Should have been married 20 years earlier, but God said, no, I got a better plan for you, buddy. Wait till you see this. So, we see here that in, it, certainly in this culture, this would have been the norm, but it also makes, makes some pretty good sense. Um, and it also helps you realize that what makes a marriage successful, just on a side note, isn't because you chose well or because you guys get along well personality-wise, but instead because the hand of God is on it and the hand of God is moving things forward himself. So the, the, but we are going to see an interesting play of well, what makes a good bride to be here. So verse five, the servant said to him, suppose a woman is not willing to follow me to this land. I'm going to go on this, this journey that will take a few weeks to get there. I'm going to arrive and then I'm going to bring her back. What if she's not willing to follow me to this land, to a husband she's never seen before, um, to a place she's never gone? Um, hopefully they still remember who Abraham is and because um, they haven't seen him since he left. Should I take your son back to the land where you came from? Then Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants, I will give the land. He will send his angel before you 
and you will take a wife from my son there. So Abraham is making it very clear that you do not go back with Isaac. Isaac stays here. And this is continuing on the theme that we saw in 23 when Abraham establishes a piece of land for the burial place. And the first time burial is mentioned in the Bible is in chapter 23. It establishes that that Sarah is buried there. Abraham's going to be buried there. His children are going to be buried there. Or his child is going to be buried there. And his wife, they've established in the land. And here, the last thing he needs, he's in advanced years. What happens if Isaac goes back and ends up staying there? Is there any risk that he'll go back and stay there? It'd be a real risk. It's a long journey. The people there might even try to convince him to stay longer and keep him there. Just to jump ahead, does everybody remember what happens when Jacob goes there to find a wife? How many years did he spend there? What's that? Yeah. So he, gets, he ends up to earn his wife. He works seven years, gets the wrong one. So he earns his wife again for seven years and then stays longer than that. Abraham dies in that time if Isaac goes. So that's the first thing. But the other thing is, is that this, this connection, verse six to verse seven, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me saying to your descendants, I will give this land. So he's not just saying, well, I have to do what God says because he took me from where I was born and brought me here. He's saying, I have to do what God says because he brought me here and this is where we're supposed to stay. I need Isaac to stay here. His mother is gone now. She is buried here. I'm close to death. If he leaves and I die, we're no longer here. This does not work. No, absolutely not. He cannot go. But instead... God is going to send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. So don't worry, Eliezer, I understand what your concern is and it's a valid concern, but do understand that God has this under control and he will take care of it because it is very important that we stay in this land. And then he says, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from your oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Those of you who are in charge of people, who have servants underneath you or employees underneath you, when you give them a command, those of you with children, when you give them a command and they ask for clarification and they want to know the exact parameters, don't jump all over them for it. Make sure that you say, whoa, 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 okay, I get your concern. It's a great example here for you. It's not the main point in the text at all, but it is something you can carry away. Eliezer, as a servant, is getting very clear instruction and where it's not clear, he wants to know, okay, so what do I do if she can't come? Tell me this. He's looking ahead. He's planning ahead. And he's seeing what, what problems might occur. And Abraham is, is treating him with respect here. It's just a great relationship between the two of them. With that, I think it's important to note that Eliezer is not rejected from receiving the inheritance from God because of any fault that's mentioned here. Eliezer was put in a role of servant. He was not put in the role. He was born in Abraham's house. So Abraham would have known him from his birth. He was in line to receive the inheritance and he doesn't miss out on that inheritance because of something he's done that's wrong with him, but because 
he is not in the lineage. He does not have the parentage that Isaac has. There's no fault in him in that. And he's, he, he takes that role and he works with it. And he says, okay, this is where you've placed me, God. This is how I'm going to behave and this is how I'm going to act. I understand my position here. He doesn't mope about the fact that here he has been so faithful and yet now God is, is moving to, to work the line through Isaac instead. It's just a really neat picture of, of this man, Eliezer. He's very impressive. I don't, think it's a, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's crazy that Moses names his son after him. If you think about up to this point, the great men of the Bible, if you're going to name your son after one of them, up to chapter 24, who would you name your son after? Out of all the men, any ideas? Would you do Noah? He kind of messes up, but maybe. Noah wasn't bad. I think up to this point, the, 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 the character in this story, in this line so far, that I've been most impressed with here is Eliezer. Abraham, probably not. Um, great man, yes, but boy, he, he has a special way of screwing up a lot. Um, God continues to use him, but again, we just see the faithfulness of the servant of Eliezer. A true, true picture of what a servant is to be. So we see Abraham and Eli- Eliezer uh, that, that they have this oath established. And immediately we see then Eliezer leaving. So Eliezer agrees and, and goes and he takes 10 camels from the camels of his master and sets out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. So he would have gone up, again, I don't have a map, but he would have gone up through, they're, they're somewhere kind of southwest of the bottom of the Dead Sea. And they're going to go up north, all the way around Sea of Galilee, way up north, and then they're going to come down to the south into Mesopotamia because crossing through the wilderness just doesn't work. So it's a long a long trip. So he takes his ten camels of his master and sets out and all these other good things that he brings with him. So verse 10 is a long time. A bunch, it's, a, it's weeks to make this trip. Months to make this trip sometimes. Um, and so verse 11 through 14, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Again, not necessarily what the text is, the main point of the text, but again, Eliezer here is is thinking on his feet. He's got to come up with a way, okay, I've been sent to this foreign country. I have to find a wife for my my. Master, I don't know anyone here. I don't know these people here. And I have to figure out, okay, how am I going to do this? So he calls on God and he comes up with this plan of, 
I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch the daughters of the city come out. I'm at the right city. I know this is where Abraham's family lives. And when one of them comes out, I'll ask her for a drink. And if she waters my camels too, then, then I know, God, that's who you have planned. What's even more amazing is, is that, uh, that Eliezer involves God in the plan. He acknowledges God's relationship with Abraham. Show loving kindness to my master Abraham. He understands that, that God is the God of Abraham. He understands that God is the one who is sovereign in all this. And that without God's help, he is not going to be able to fulfill the, the task that Abraham has been given. And ultimately, he acknowledges that if there is any success, it's because he's showing loving kindness to his master, Abraham. He's not even, he's asking for success for himself, but he's asking for success because in doing so, it would show loving kindness to Abraham. So at the bare at the minimum, he is focused on himself, but mostly he's focused on how that will result for Abraham, and he's focused on that God is the one who needs to be sovereign over all of this. And so he comes up with this. This is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to ask for water from one of these girls who's coming out to gather water, and we'll see what happens and see if, see if there's a way for us to know if she's the one, and this is how we're going to do it. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. So, obviously we know, well, 99% of you know, Rebekah is the one, right? So we already know the end of the story, which is kind of sad, but, oh well. Rebekah comes out before he finished speaking. So before he is done talking to God about, okay, this is the plan. God's already put the plan into motion. It's not that God says, this isn't one of those instances where God uses the prayer of somebody to affect his plan. God's plan is in motion and the prayer actually just aligns Eliezer with what with plan God had already had. So immediately... Rebecca enters the scene, sent by God before the prayer is even started, and arrives before it is finished. God is not only sovereign over what is going on, he is proactive. He set into motion the request of the prayer before the prayer even started. Now, Rebecca and Isaac are very closely related. They're like second cousins on through two different ways separated by one generation through Nahor and Bethuel and two generations through Haran, Milcah and Bethuel. So, like I said, it's a bush. And the line of uh, Jacob, goes back, or Jacob goes back to also marry within that family line. Much the same way Abraham was married to his half-sister. Can we just stop that and just leave that there and walk away? I'd like to. Good. I'm glad every, no one's going to make me deal with that. Um, certainly not how we see things done today. Not all that unusual in that culture. Um, so let's look at Rebecca then. Um, first thing that we see about Rebecca. What's the first thing that we see? She's what? What's that? 
Okay, she's involved in taking care of the animals. Absolutely, and that's the important thing because the very first thing we see is that she's coming out with a jar on her shoulder. She is worker. She is not just a pretty face. Comes out with a jar on her shoulder. And we're going to see she's really good at working here. Then it mentions the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring. So they would have walked down like stairs and, or a steep slope down to where the water was, draw the water in a jar and bring it back up. So she's done that. Um, but there's other criteria here or other things about her. One of them, which is very important, is that uh, she is a virgin and she is unmarried and she is pure, meaning she is available to marry Isaac. So that part's, that part's taken care of. So, so far, she's fit the criteria that he's looking for, someone who's going to come out and draw water. And turns out she's very beautiful. That's a bonus. We like that. And then... She's a, and she's a worker. That came up first. And then the servant runs to meet her and says, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And, and you just kind of wonder, did he, what was it that was so impressive to Eliezer that he actually goes and runs to meet her? We get the picture here that he is hopeful that this is the one, that these things that she has seen so far means that she is the one. And I don't know enough about the culture and I don't think we have a firm enough grasp on it, but I suspect there was some way that he could also tell that she was uh, still pure, that she was a virgin and that she was unmarried as she comes down. And it may just be the timing of the day and who she's with and all those things. But he sees all these criteria that are lining up and he gets excited and he runs to meet her. He is, he is energetic about fulfilling this plan, and he also knows that God is on his side to do it. So he runs to meet her and says, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered the jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had, so, so at this point, the picture is he's there. She has a jar. She gives him something to drink out of her jar and remember, the whole thing that, that is going on is that it's a drink and I will water your camels also. So he asks for a drink, she gives him a drink and he takes a drink. And the whole time he's got to be going, hand? Come on, say it. And she does, sure enough. Um, so now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. And here's the, the most amazing thing, I think, in the whole chapter. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. I'm going to assume the camels had something to drink before then. Because uh, how much can a camel drink? Does anyone have an idea? Yeah, like 40 gallons. So they will drink... There's 10 of them. A camel can swallow 53 gallons of water in a minute. Yeah, I'm like, there's no, there's no way. Yes, they are apparently 
really, really good. Now, that's the max, that they, that's like a dry camel, and I'm going to guess this camels weren't dry camels. Um, but they, they did need some water. So she goes up and down and, and waters these camels, and she's, and again, you've got to go down, and you've got to carry the water back up. And she does this voluntarily. He didn't ask for the camels to be watered. Um, so she... She must be, she must be incredible. She, she, she's a worker. She works really hard. If you jump to Proverbs 31, we're not going to, but you're just like, okay, so far she's meeting a lot of these criteria. Hey, look at this. So she empties her, draw, her jar into the trough. She runs down to the well, draws more, brings it back up. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence. Yeah. Probably all of them were. They're just like, oh my gosh, who is this Wonder Woman? All right. Um, gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord has made his journey successful or not. He's, he's got to be thinking, this is it. This is the one. Everything is right. Now we just, need to, to, we just need to dot the I's and cross the T's, get the contract signed, get out of here. Um, so when the camels had finished drinking, camels are now thirst, are no longer thirsty, They've drunk. The man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing uh, 10 shekels in gold. So I did the math and I wrote it down. You're just going to have to trust me here. A shekel is about 0.4 ounces of gold and gold is valued at about $1,900 an ounce right now. And gold tends to be worth what it's worth in all times. So this in today's dollars would have been about $8,000 worth of gold nose ring plus two bracelets. So he gives her this jewelry and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she says to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge. And the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. So once he finds out who she is, and we're going to find out that the order here isn't necessarily exactly how it is. He finds out who her relations are, gives her the gift. It's written, it's flipped here, but I think there's a, there's a reason for that here. We won't go into it, but just based on the literature of the time, I think that's why we see a flip here. What's important here is that once he realizes for sure that God is at work in, the, in all of this, he immediately bows down low and worships the Lord. He's just in awe of what God has just done. God didn't only provide, but he's provided abundantly in this, in this girl. There isn't anything here that's lacking. Any of his concerns he may have had about who he was going to find, God has taken care of. He's, you remember, he stood there in silence and watched and he looked at her behavior and he looked at the way she reacted. Not only did she water the camels, but she's invited him back to the home to lodge and he's, she's going to take care of him. She's showing incredible hospitality. There are younger people here. Um, this, is, this is a person, uh, whether, whether you're looking for a wife someday or you're looking for a husband someday, these are the characters that you want to see in a person. These are the characters of a person God has chosen to be Isaac's wife. God is the one who's in charge of these things. These are characteristics that you want to develop so that you would be a good choice as a spouse in your future. That you're hardworking, that you take care of yourself, um, that you keep yourself pure. 
that you keep, uh, that you make yourself available, that you're hospitable, that you care for others who you don't even know. You have to remember that Eliezer knows who this is or has an idea of who he's searching out. She doesn't. She's not, there's no indication here that she woke up that morning and prayed to God, please uh, find me a husband. And when I go to the well, uh, uh, if somebody asks me for a drink uh, and they have camels that I can water, then I'll know that's the man. Um, it's not like that at all for her. She's doing what she does as a person, as the type of person she is. She's displaying the qualities about her. And I think if Proverbs 31 is all about uh, this is how you become a great, this is what a great wife looks like, I think that. Genesis 24 is all about this is what a servant looks like and this is what uh, a potential spouse looks like. So, verse 28. She's got to be a little bit floored by everything that's taken place. Um, here's this man that comes and gives her the gift and everything and, and boy, we have to keep moving, don't we? Gives her the gift and everything and um, that he's looking for uh, a wife, and there's this Abraham who she's heard of. He's a distant relative, lives in a foreign land, and this man worships the Lord, and and he's going to come to the house. And so she, verse 28, the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man at the spring when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist. And when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister saying, this is what the man said to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and feet for the, of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat. This is Eliezer. I will not eat till I have told my business. So Laban says, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. And in the interest of time, Eliezer then goes through exactly everything we read, just basically to the letter. And we don't find that very often in in this world where somebody is able to expound exactly what their mission is and their role is and to do it so incredibly accurately. Even to the point of, hey, if this doesn't work out, I'm free of my oath there in verse 41. Um, Then he goes through everything that takes place uh, at the spring, starting in verse 42. And then moving on. We'll jump ahead in my notes all the way down to, to verse 49. I mean, he even mentions the whole in 48, oh, I bowed down low and worshiped the Lord. So Laban has a, has a good picture of everything that's taken place up to this point in the chapter. And so then in verse 49, after Eliezer tells him all the story, remember they're, they're waiting to eat. He says, so now if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So there is something in Laban, I think, that Eliezer notes. And I think he notes that Laban is not a man to be trusted. It's a hunch I have, but I think it's well supported here. I think he makes it very clear to Laban that no, we're not going any further. 
He stops him before they eat. We're going to make sure this is all nailed down and it's taken care of. And if you're not going to go through with this, then I need to do something else. And that certainly would fit the picture of Laban we have from chapter 29 when we get there, when Laban deals with Jacob. So verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel replied, the matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So Eliezer's expectation is that there will be kindness and honesty. He explains to him that he's coming from God. This is a mission that God sent him on. And he basically boxes Laban in. Laban has no choice here. He's stuck. If he crosses, if he doesn't go through with this, he knows full well that he is, he has gone against God. There in verse 51, he says as much as the Lord has spoken. So he understands. Eliezer does a really good job of making Laban understand what's at risk here. Laban, you need to do this because God is the one who's in control of this. If you're not going to do this, it will be on you. So verse 52 through 61, we see uh, when Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. So the matter is apparently finished. We're done. Okay, good. Hands shook. Everyone in the family agrees we're going to go through with this. What's interesting is later they ask Rebecca if she's going to go through with it. Um, but at this point, everyone agrees again, Eliezer gives God, gives God the credit, bows himself to the ground and worships God. So the servants bring out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and they give them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Just really quick, understand that the things that Laban, Laban has not only seen that God is, in the, is the one who's planning all this, but he's also seen all the wealth that was brought in. And I think that influences him. It wasn't just what was on, what Rebecca wore back in the nose ring and the bracelets and things, but it also is uh, the, uh, all the servants, all the camels, all the wealth that they brought with them. And I think that influences Laban. And, and again, I think Eliezer sees that as supported in verse, or chapter 29. So the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they rose in the morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days. Say 10. Afterwards, she may go. Now we know with Laban, 10 days may turn out to be 10 years. So Eliezer says to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. Eliezer's faithfulness and his drive and determination to complete the goal saves him, I think, a trap. Um, I just kept on picturing the little funny creature from Star Wars saying, it's a trap. Because <laughs> it was. He was trying to set him up from what we know about Laban. But again, he stays focused on it. His, his face is set on what God has sent him to do. 
He said, we'll call the girl and consult her wishes. The decision's already made. You can consult her wishes, but I don't know if they're looking for her to maybe say, yeah, I want a delay and maybe, but Rebecca, the response here is good. I will go. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of 10,000s and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them, which is gonna happen. Not that they necessarily knew and understood what her role was going to be, Maybe they had an idea. Maybe they were told during the night, yeah, this is what's been promised to Abraham. This is who Isaac is. Um, by the way, he almost died. Abraham almost killed him, but God saved him. And all those things, maybe they, they knew all these things and knew what she was, what the goal here was, is the promised seed and, and that the, the great nation's gonna come out of her. Um, but I suspect they were speaking in ignorance just in general, um, kind of like when the, the priests say, well, if Jesus stays alive, um, the whole world will go after him. Um, and sure enough, it happens. Or John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world when he wasn't convinced Jesus was the Messiah yet. Um, those types of things. I think this is one of those utterances that is absolutely true, but the person speaking doesn't fully understand what they're saying. But this is who Rebecca becomes. So Rebecca in 61 arose with her maids and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. Um, so we see this uh, then the return in verse 62. Now Isaac had come from going to Ber Lahai Roy for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field. That meditate word maybe means meditate. Uh, we aren't exactly sure. It's out for an evening walk. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, and Isaac brought her into his mother's tent and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Um, just a, an amazing picture. If this, was, this turns this whole chapter into a chick chapter. Because um, <laughs> I picture this as a movie scene with the camels coming, and he's out in the field, and the sun's setting. And he looks up, and she hops off the camel and puts the veil around her face when she sees who he is. And, and the servant comes up and you don't hear the words and the servant is talking to Isaac and when he tells him the story, his eyes get big and he looks over his shoulder and, and then they take and they go into, yeah, dramatic music and they go into the, not like, not like uh, Ahab the Arab music going on in the background for those of you know who know Stevens. Anyway, um, so we see this picture and I, it, what, is, what I think is noted here is that there is a sadness in Isaac's life at the loss of his mother and the relationship with his wife is meant to be a comfort for not having the relationship with the mother. That leave and cleave picture is given here, even though it's a, it's a mortality leaving, uh, a mortal leaving of his mother. Um, but the bond between Isaac and his mother was great. And uh, it, is, it is restored. This, this relationship he now has with his wife helps comfort him in that. And I think that's important. I do want to touch, though, on this idea of servant. And let's just really quick turn over to John. John 12. 
John 12, 44. This is after Jesus has foretold of his death. Jesus knows why he is here. He has his mind set. His face is set on Jerusalem. He knows he's coming to die for the sins of evil people that he might draw them to himself and bring them to himself, bearing their sin. So verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, the one who judge, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Is that not a picture of who Eliezer was? Sent by his master with the ultimate authority being God himself. If you reject my words, Laban, and you don't follow through with this, you are rejecting God. You're saying his plan is not the one that you're going to follow. That's where your judgment's going to come from. And I think we saw Laban realize that and forced him to, to comply But we see this in our Savior himself, the greatest king to ever live, the greatest man to ever live, the one who has never done anything wrong, the one who comes from the Father himself, the one who has been promised all the inheritance himself and will also receive the inheritance is the one who he sent to be the messenger. Not only that, but the one he sent to be a servant because then we jump to chapter 13 and within five verses, he has girded himself And he's washing his disciples' feet to continue that picture of servant. Not only to serve God himself, but also to serve us. And you can't, I don't think you can learn about who Eliezer is without seeing the picture of who Christ is himself, recounting exactly what the Father told him to speak, just as Eliezer did. I think Eliezer is to be honored in Scripture as being an amazing picture of who a servant is because Jesus Christ then shows us even beyond Eliezer what type of servant he is, even though he is the heir apparent. He is the true, only begotten Son of the Father. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for, again, the Lord that you have given us to worship, that our King is a great and mighty King who's worthy of all glory, honor, wealth, everything in this world Uh, belongs to him and we need to follow him. And at the same time, he lowered himself to be a servant to you, to give us exactly what we need to know and hear. And he did exactly what you asked for him, even to the point of death on the cross, that you might lift him up and glorify him, Lord. I pray that we would see that today, even back in Genesis 24. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.